This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in to AOA here on this Tuesday. It's hard to believe we're already getting close to the end of June. Just a few more short days until the 30th. And the USDA releases their quarterly stocks report and their acreage, final planting acreage, for this growing season. We're going to talk markets with Dan Huber here in just a moment of Reading Huber Ag Consultants. And then we're going to get into the demand destruction question with David Widmer of Agricultural Economic Insights, or AEI. And in segment three, folks, crude oil, the energy sector, still very much in focus, still very much a hot topic. And Darren Domi, managing partner at the Powerline Group, will join us to break down where he sees this sector headed. And then in segment four, we're going to get caught up on the wheat harvest taking place down in Kansas with Marsha Boswell of Kansas Wheat. Before we dive into all of that, though, folks, it is a turnaround Tuesday in the grain markets today. Corn, beans, wheat, all higher on the day. Joining me to talk about this is Dan Huber. Dan, thanks for joining us on the show today. Very good. My pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's talk about what's going on. We had crop conditions reported yesterday from the USDA. Dan, is that the factor that's really driving these markets higher this morning? Oh, I, I think to a large extent, yes. I mean, the uh, little deterioration there kind of got the uh, the bold juices flowing again. And, uh, you know, the markets have been under pressure here for really for the last couple of weeks. Uh, you know, wheat especially, uh, you know, have, has been taken down this, into some old support areas. Corn kind of following suit there. Bean, well, you know, really all three. I mean, beans really had November beans pushed down against $14. Uh, that's a level that's held us several times here over the last uh, several months, in fact. And, you know, we, we've responded back on that. And, you know, I mean, keeping perspective here that you know, we have this kind of trifecta of end of the month, end of the quarter. And, of course, these reports now coming up here on Thursday that's kind of driving prices here this week. So, uh, you know, the, I think we were not only liquidating because of those factors, uh, just taking a little bit of risk off the table, but, the, you know, now bouncing back really for the same reasons, just kind of balancing things out. So, Dan, let's think ahead to those reports coming out on Thursday. Of course, acreage <laughs> is a discussion and then stocks is another discussion. On the stocks front, are you anticipating any surprises here in this report? Well, you know, generally speaking, of course, it's you, know, you hope that the uh, the trade has got a pretty good handle on what's out there. I mean, a lot of them are running numbers, and you know, some of these people are, are commercials who are within the industry. So, so no, I mean, you, you always want to assume that uh, there's not going to be any major shocks in there. But I mean, that element of surprise is always the risk that we have to deal with, no matter what kind of report is out there. But, but no, I mean, the, the guess is 4.3 million bushel of corn, 965 million beans. You know, are certainly not uh, are not shocking numbers, you know, that would be in both the case of corn and soybeans, of course, a little bit higher than they were a year ago at this time. Uh, wheat, wheat, of course, being the exception there, $655 million estimate that versus $845 million a year ago. So, that, you know, again, anything within that range shouldn't be the uh, shouldn't be much of the shocking news. And, and, of course, I mean, the grain stocks report is generally overshadowed by the acres report. That's the one that everybody's really focused on because markets are kind of looking forward at this point in time. And, and you know, and of course, we, we need, you know, for everybody around the world, we need a, a solid crop here in the United States this year. So uh, the acres is probably the one that's going to take precedence tomorrow. All right. Well, through, well yeah, on Thursday morning. Dan, let's talk a little yeah. bit about what Redding Huber is expecting here for this acreage report. It has been such a challenging planting season. Who do you think got more? Who got less? Where's this acreage battle going to end up here on Thursday? Well, you know, realistically, the, the numbers are not, they're not showing much change from uh, where the March estimates came in there. And of course, that number was a bit of a surprise in soybeans to begin with. You know, nobody really anticipated that uh, the bean number was going to be as high as it did. You know, not that markets necessarily reacted terribly, uh, terrible to them for any length of time, at least. Uh, you know, from a personal standpoint, I guess I'm a little bit surprised that maybe they are expecting uh, a greater boost in corn acreage than was anticipated. It, but of course, you know we have to take into consideration the, the extreme problems ahead of them. The Dakotas, 
places like that this year where, I mean, we absolutely lost corn acres, but I think, you know, back here into the high states, you know, great planting weather, you know, most of the producers I spoke with, if they could get available seed and, and the, uh, the inputs, uh, they did put a little more corn in there. So the two have obviously kind of washed them out. The average trade guess now is 89.86, almost 89.9 million acres. You know, so you're looking 350, 400 million, maybe above, uh, 350,000 above uh, the numbers in March. Not a huge shift. Uh, they're going to, you're taking a little bit out of that out of the beans, but of course I think it's spring wheat and some of the smaller grains, you know, in those northern tiers again, you know, that had such an issue with the planting you know, this spring that uh, we're, we're seeing the, the cutback in the uh, from from the other products. That certainly makes some sense. Dan, I want to turn the focus to exports. We keep hearing about this global food crisis we are in, Mm -hmm. and yet American commodity exports are still running slow, it would appear to me, this summer. Do you have an expectation that exports are going to increase as we get a little deeper into the summer? You know, probably uh, not significantly until we get towards the new crop. And granted, you know, even though South America you know, had lesser crops and, you know, they potentially set out to have to begin with, they still have that available supply there. You know, even even look at uh, Brazil and Argentina right now, you know, you're only about 20% harvested on the Supreme corn crop in Brazil, 40% harvested on the Argentine corn crop, you know, so they still have product that can move into the world markets. We're just not really competitive here at this point in time, but, you know, that's uh, as the summer wars on, as we start moving out towards our new crop months, you know, we're, we're probably going to take the precedence again. But, you know, right now they're going to buy anywhere and everywhere at the cheapest price they can. You know, everybody's doing what they can to uh, to counter the effects of inflation, you know, be it energy, be it food, whatever the case may be. So, I mean, they're, they're definitely going to go to the lowest cost producer if they can at this point. Dan, this morning in your comments, you talked about the soybean oil market, and that was a market that saw an incredible rally over the past four or five months. It has tapered off and, in fact, sold off quite a bit over the last 11 days. It's turning around. What has developed in that soy oil market? Well, you know, one, I think we have, you know, tempered the, uh, you know, particularly the last wave we moved higher in there was very much directly related to the energy prices, as we've seen energy prices cool off. Uh, and, and we've seen people, you know, I mean, what the, price, the, the purpose of higher prices is to get people to use less. And I think, you know, anywhere they could, they could find it substitutes. People have been cut back on, on the oil oil use for cooking, for, uh, for food needs. And I think as we cooled off the energy prices as well, I mean, that understandably took the, uh, the need or the demand for beef palm or crude or uh, uh, rapeseed oil, all of them pulled back just to kind of tempering from maybe some of the emotional extremes that uh, pushed it higher than realistically should have here two months ago. Do you think this is going to rebound itself? Could we pick back up about half of what we've lost here in bean oil over the last several weeks? Well, I think you know, picking half back up is, is a very reasonable assessment. And, you know, I, I look at all of these things. And granted, weather still holds the, uh, the key on what happens over the next 30 to 60 days here. But, yeah, you, you know, unless we run into some kind of a serious, serious weather issue here in North America or in Europe, we've probably seen our highs for the year. But that doesn't mean that we can't try to build a little risk bring it back in here again. That risk premium, that's what we'll be watching over this summer as it warms up. Our thanks to Dan Huber of Redding Huber Ag Consultants. Dan, always appreciate your insight. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. And folks, stick around. We'll be talking to David Widmer, partner at Agricultural Economic Insights, about corn demand looking forward when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up hi i'm secretary tom vilsack in my 40 plus years of experience in the ag industry i have seen firsthand the tremendous value and influence of the census of agriculture a complete count of our farms ranches and the people who operate them that tells the story of u.s agriculture it highlights trends needs and the great impact agriculture has on every american as well as folks around the world. Ag Census data also informs federal, state, and local decisions that will affect you and your operations for years to come. If you're an ag producer, no matter the size of your operation, urban or rural, and you did not receive the 2017 Census of Agriculture and did not receive other USDA surveys, you still have time 
to sign up to receive the 2022 Ag Census this fall. Every voice matters. To sign up or learn more, visit nas.usda.gov backslash agcensus. Thank you. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen, it's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for tuning in and making AOA a part of your day here on this Tuesday. We are going to be checking in with David Widmer, an economist at Agricultural Economic Insights, here in just a bit to discuss corn usage and how that has been tracked over time and what's happening here with high-priced corn. Before we get David, though, on the line, I did want to talk about a report that had slipped under my radar, but I think it is very important and worth discussing. This report came out from the U.S. Department of Energy, so this is a Biden administration office, and they were looking into the impact of ethanol versus petroleum-based fuel carbon emissions. Now, of course, a lot of you folks who tune, tune into this program, remember we've talked about this quite a lot, the discussions happening in the ethanol space right now about measuring the carbon intensity of the crop that's grown, obviously that corn crop or any starch crop that gets used then to produce ethanol, how much or how do we measure that carbon impact and how does that compare to producing um, fossil fuels? Well, the Department of Energy released this report last Thursday and it came out very strongly in favor of U.S. biofuels, um, highlighted the changes that we've seen develop in the industry over the past several years since the creation of the renewable fuel standard in 2005. And then, of course, the update of the RFS in 2007. And they decided to compile this report using Department of Energy Resources. This was published by Argonne National Laboratory. They are one of the groups that tracks this carbon intensity. And uh, we've spoken with our friends from Renewable Fuel Association about the metrics they use to gauge the, the impact of carbon in this crop. And what they have found is that really earlier estimates of the carbon intensity of ethanol overestimated just how much carbon was produced as we were making this ethanol. This most recent um, report, the Argonne National Laboratory did the study in 2021, and now they're publishing the, re the results. 
they found that U.S. corn ethanol is 44 to 52 percent lower in greenhouse gas emissions than in gasoline. And folks, Argon is recognized globally. They are one of the leading experts on this type of life cycle carbon analysis. And this works right in conjunction with a lot of the research that the ethanol industry has been supporting across the country at land grant universities, verifying the fact that car corn production in this country has continued to climb in efficiency. And that efficiency on the production side, the farmer's side of the ledger, moves through the value chain. That lesser carbon impactful corn then creates lesser carbon ethanol, which can then be sold for a premium in some of these markets. Uh, they noted also that looking out to the future, there's tremendous opportunity for con uh, continuing these improvements in corn ethanol GHG emissions. Argon notes that there are technologies already in existence that can be used on a more widespread basis to make significant improvements in the reduction of life cycle carbon from ethanol. They say right now we're reducing carbon about 40% utilizing the techniques that we have available with the the methods that are out there right now and they're looking at precision agriculture you know they're looking at at no-till at strip till at some of the other improvements and agronomics that farmers can do on the farm that reduce the carbon intensity i say if those were more widely spread we could cut that from 40 percent fewer ghgs than petroleum to 70 percent fewer greenhouse grasses gases than petroleum Additionally, what I thought was interesting from the perspective of, of biofuel advocates with regard to this report, Argonne went deep into the impacts of sustainable aviation fluid. We've talked about that a few times on this program. It really is an exciting proposition for biofuel producers. Effectively, the challenge is that flying jet planes around in the sky burns an awful lot of fuel. And that, that fuel creates a awful lot of greenhouse gases. So airline companies feeling the push from investors to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, they're, they're looking for less carbon intensive drop in fuel replacements. The idea being they don't want to have to reinvent a jet engine. They just want a different fuel that's going to produce less carbon as it's carrying those passengers to and from their different destination. Well, the idea of using ethanol or perhaps a, a soy-based biodiesel product, a sustainable, renewable product for jet fuels means that by transitioning to these other applications, you could reduce jet fuel emissions by 153%. Excuse me, I, I spoke that, I misspoke there. A lot of you folks doing the math are going to recognize that might be a little high. What they're saying is that ethanol sustainable aviation fuel is going to produce 153% fewer greenhouse gas emissions than petroleum. That is a huge savings, and it's a something that these planners are going to be willing to invest in to try and continue to grow this space. We're going to be watching this long-term one of the big discussions happening right now in the ethanol space is the idea of land use change. At the end of the day, when we're calculating carbon intensity, what it all comes back to is looking at the industry as a whole. And as you're looking at the industry as a whole, you have to figure out, okay, which components of this industry are we going to add in? And a lot of researchers add in land use changes. The idea is that Renewable fuel policies were brought onto, into being to help spur this creation of a new type of fuel. And in so doing, we're gonna change the environment a little bit. Producers now have a different incentive in the way they manage their farm. And we could see folks, you know, maybe pull ground out of CRP and plant it to corn, or perhaps they sell the cows and a couple of pastures get tilled up and worked into corn. The argument from the environmental side is that those land use changes, bringing this land out of grass, you know, if it was a pasture and putting it back into corn is, in their view, a negative impact on the environment that needs to be accounted for. Since we've had so much time pass since the renewable fuel standard was created in 2005, the arguments from the biofuel side, the renewable fuel side, is that, look, a lot of these land use changes have already happened. It's it's already been done. Those are sunk costs. The farmers, a lot of folks transitioned land from grass to corn in 2011, 2012, when we had the drought and corn prices went way higher. And they're discussing now how do we account for those changes long term in the industry 
And we don't really know quite yet how we're going to be able to do that. These discussions are ongoing, and Argonne, in their research for this study, looked at exactly how these models are built. And I think they had a very accurate assessment of the situation. Here's what they said in this report, quote, Land use change analysis relies on complex models and the findings are heavily influenced by the underlying assumptions that researchers apply. Rigorous scientific study, debate, and the increased availability of real-world data from growing U.S. biofuels industries have allowed for a more accurate understanding on the impacts of biofuel productions. Recent, recent studies based on actual data and not modeling indicate initial projections significantly overestimated land use change impacts. This is a crucial piece of information. There has been a lot of studies looking at modeled behavior. If corn price goes to X, how will farmers respond? These are the assumptions we're baking into this economic model. But now that enough time has passed for a lot of these land use changes to be interpreted and utilized by growers, and we've seen this corn come into production, we've seen these soy acres come, come into production, now we can actually look at the actual data. Okay, when corn hit X price, what did farmers end up doing? Now we've got 15 years of farmers' reaction to honest market prices, and at least in the case of Argonne National Laboratories, they found that a lot of those first guesses that were built on models really overestimated the impact of change to America's countryside due to biofuels policy in particular. Looking out long term, the Department of Energy did say that the future of U.S. biofuels is very strong. They are looking at biofuels to continue to find ways to lower greenhouse gas emissions and carbon intensity. They do say that in order for biofuels to continue to be competitive and to rack up these kind of savings from a greenhouse gas perspective, we need to continue to lower the carbon intensity within the existing corn ethanol industry. To do that, implement more low carbon ag practices, switch to renewable processing for heat, the idea being that these plants require a lot of power. Let's not burn coal. Let's use instead renewable uh, fuels that would help lower the cost and developing new convergent efficiency. Basically, what can we do to those plants? What can we do to the bugs that are fermenting this ethanol in order to help lower the, the greenhouse gas? And then finally, one of the major opportunities they highlight for ethanol producers to, uh, to lower their CO2 emissions is sequestration. We've talked about on this program, there's going to be a lot of discussions across the heartland here about sequestrations. Several ethanol plants are looking at building pipelines to carry their CO2 into large underground caverns and sticking it back from whence it came back underground. Those discussions will be heating up over time. We'll continue to keep an eye on what the biofuels industry is facing. But folks, when AOA returns, hopefully we'll be checking in with Darren Domi of the Powerline Group. We're going to talk about what is developed in crude oil and the energy markets more broadly. Stick around for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. The archaeological record suggests that wheat was first cultivated in the regions of the Fertile Crescent, also known as the Cradle of Civilization, around 9600 B.C. The Roman goddess Ceres, who was deemed protector of the grain, gave grains their common name today, cereal. Wheat is the primary grain used in U.S. grain products. Approximately three-quarters of all U.S. grain products are made from wheat flour. The first bagel rolled into the world in 1683 when a baker from Vienna, Austria, was thankful to the king of Poland for saving Austria. Austria from Turkish invaders, the baker reshaped the local bread so that it resembled the king's stirrup. The new bread was called bugel, derived from the German word for stirrup. Ancient traditional tortillas were made from ground corn by Mexican natives as long as 2,000 years ago. However, flour tortillas only started to become popular in the 19th century. More types of foods are made with wheat than with any other cereal grain. These farm facts brought to you by the American Egg Network. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. 
Well, as we take a look at the market trade so far here on this Tuesday, the grain markets are working their way to the upside, led by soybeans, Chicago wheat here. Corn up double digits, though, with Kansas City wheat up double digits. Spring wheat contracts are a little bit uh, higher here as we work through the morning. Uh, basically, just kind of trying to buy the brakes here after we've uh, moved to the downside quite a bit here in the last couple of sessions. Really, the money flow is generally positive for both commodities and for equities here in early trade. Both sectors seeing considerable liquidation, as I mentioned, due to economic concerns in recent days and weeks, so some consolidation is in order. Crude oil prices are higher on renewed supply concerns, and the ags again uh, seeing uh, some of this bargain buying and amid lingering inflation worries and supply concerns. USDA reported lower quartered soybean ratings again this week as weather takes its toll on the Midwest crops. Quarter bean prices along with wheat have plummeted here the last week as weather forecasts looked a bit more favorable, but it's something we're going to be watching moving into July as the weather forecasts, the long-range models still pointing to more heat and dryness coming back to the Midwest. We have USDA's quarter grain stocks and acreage report coming up on Thursday. That's going to be a big report and going to create some volatility in the market most likely. And then the holiday weekend with 4th of July on Monday also going to create some volatility coming back next week as we look at updated weather forecasts. Right now in the trade, corn for September up 12, 673 to quarter. August beans up 27, 15.56 and a half. Bean meal and bean oil up moderately. September Chicago wheat up 27, 944 and a half. September KC wheat up 18 to three quarters, 997 and a half. Spring wheat for September up five and a quarter, 1049 and three quarters. July hogs up 15, 110, June live cattle up 25, 136.50. This is AOA. I'm Jesse Allen. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration, retinitis pigmentosa, Usher syndrome, and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. We, 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 we are, are the, the Foundation, foundation Fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Oil folks around the world, energy continues to be in the spotlight. Uh, the fuel that drives us, that heats our homes, powers everything we do, has certainly gotten more expensive here over the past six months. Looking out at prices for fuel right now, AAA says the current average fuel price for regular unleaded is $4.88. Diesel price, uh, we're a couple days away from a record. Diesel currently at $5.78.5. Boy, diesel a year ago, $3.24. We were $2.50 cheaper per gallon just one year ago in diesel. That is something else, folks. Well, to give us some insight onto what is happening in the energy space, joining me now is Darren Domi. He's a managing partner at the Powerline Group, working with ag experts and folks throughout industry to manage their oil price risks. Darren, thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for inviting me. Well, let's talk first about this diesel market. My goodness, it has been a roller coaster for the past two months. Darren, have we gotten over the worst of the supply shortages? The market sure seems like it, uh, especially over this whole month of June. We basically traded sideways in the diesel fuel market. And actually today, before your phone call, the diesel fuel market is actually broken down in the futures below support of 410 and projects potentially down to 370 in the futures market. That'd be about another 30 to 40 cents down. Wow. All right. So these are big jumps. Darren, what has changed? Has there been any fundamental difference to either supply and demand since we last talked? 
fundamentally, uh, what's helping us out is that three-quarter or 75-point basis uh, interest rate hike has really shocked the market. Um, and the market is, you know, seeing bigger recessionary fears. You're seeing a lot of trucking demand really starting to soften. Target, Walmart, a lot of other stores are really cutting back. Um, you're just starting to really see some of the uh, transportation and trucking side demand really starting to soften. You're seeing uh, even your farmers are, are reporting that their feed truck drivers are back to a five-day schedule. Um, you know, cutting out that, that Saturday delivery, even fertilizer truck drivers are saying they're being cut back some on their hours. I think you just hit those summer doldrums right here. All right. So we're in the summer doldrums. We're seeing these recession fears cool off prices. Darren, we think ahead to, to harvest. We've got farmers that are going to be burning a lot of diesel, getting that crop out. Should we be buying ahead right now? Should we be filling tanks? Are we going to have diesel when we get to harvest? What do you think? <laughs> well, I think you'll have plenty of diesel when you get to harvest. Uh, you just got so many unknowns that going uh, going on right now. And you've got a lot of things that can still send this market explosively higher. Number one that's kind of keeping the market also under check is that Russia is really not uh, being taken out of the mix. They're still supplying the world with plenty of oil. It's just going around who it normally used to go to. However, you're starting to walk right into the hurricane season, tropical storm hurricane season. You're, you've got an active Atlantic uh, tropical system down there right now, but the storms are mostly heading straight to the west. Uh, give it a little bit of time we get one storm to come up into the Gulf of Mexico uh, and it hits some of these refineries from Mississippi to Louisiana into that Texas uh, area and we're going to be in big trouble. We can't handle another big supply disruption. You know, I might add that diesel fuel may back off here into the next couple of weeks. I think that'd be a great opportunity for farmers to really go ahead and fill those tanks or get some coverage in place in some fashion with either some call options futures or some wet barrels uh, to cover those risk needs going into harvest. All right. Good advice. Buy when you can, not when you have to. Darren, you work in this industry every single day. You've been in this space for a long time. We've heard the president come out and accuse oil companies of, of not producing enough to meet demand. I'm wondering, on the policy front, is there anything the industry's excited about that this administration has done to help increase production? <laughs> Excited about? Um, I, I haven't seen it. Um, you know, you just continue to get a lot of the CEOs uh, of these large petroleum companies coming back and saying, look, uh, you know, you spat in our face so many times when you took office that it's really hard for us to come back and, and buy into anything you want from us at this point. Um, everybody's nervous that the administration is going to jerk the rug out from under them once this situation starts to be resolved. So are you envisioning any more supply coming online because of these high prices? Or do you think investment's going to sit on the sidelines until the regulatory environment is a little friendlier? It's really hard to go out and increase the supply long term. Everybody that's in the oil production or refining business will do what they can short term. They're being rewarded financially very well through the crack spreads for the refineries right now. So they'll try and produce as much as they possibly can as long as they don't blow up their plants. Uh, oil producers, uh, shell oil drillers, uh, they're continuing to go back, but you just, you're just you seeing the number of wells increase on Friday afternoons in, in the drilling reports, but nothing like it could be. Um, they're still a little skeptical about dumping a lot of capital in and investing into a lot of those wells. So other countries are also having problems. Um, Libya, Ecuador, they've got political problems that have shut down a lot of oil production. And OPEC right now is basically at its maximum production. All right. So no additional supply necessarily coming online anytime soon globally. Darren, nothing really to speak of here domestically. I'd like to turn the focus then to natural gas if we can, because that market, again, very, very volatile. Do you see U.S. natural gas prices just moving higher as we supply more and more of Europe? I think they will as we go into fall. Uh, right now, natural gas has just had a massive break. It was trading $9.50 just two weeks ago, dropped all the way down near $6, and is currently trading at about 
today, $6.67 per MMBTU. So it's down about 40% off its high in the last two weeks. Um, you know, those that large interest rate jump, slowing down some of the um, local factories. You're seeing that slow down with the recession um, in production. So, you know, that gave this natural gas market a big setback. So if you're an end user in natural gas, now would be a really good time to come back in, uh, get some long hedges in place as you go into fall. What I could see happening is just like last August, Mike, when everybody kind of panicked because they want to do those winter fills, you know, and they'll, they'll start doing some aggressive buying in August, September, and then they're done for the winter. Absolutely. That is the key. Those winter fills getting close. Darren, I was just pulled up the natural gas charts and I don't spend a lot of time in this market, certainly not compared to you. Seeing the the incredible break in prices from July of 22 at 668 down to I just picked June of 23, a year out from now 474 and three quarters. You know, there's a two dollar difference there in natural gas. Is that kind of, of spread standard in the natural gas space? Uh, no, I mean the market's greatly inverted as it is right now. You you normally don't don't see quite uh, that big of an inverse in the market. So you know the market is telling you that it needs it and it's going to need it this winter, and that they're hoping by you know the end of this winter a lot of this crisis situation could be over in Europe. But that's what All the right. market's D trying to tell you. Okay, trying to pull those supplies out right now. On the natural gas front, is it easier to increase production of gas, Darren, or is it just like crude, they got to throw the money at it, and nobody's quite willing at this stage in the game? You know, there's a lot of little ways that we can increase the production just by, by capping off some of the burning of, of the excess gas at a lot of these oil wellheads, but it's the same way. You've got to continue to drill the natural gas wells to get the production up. Gotcha. And the, the enthusiasm just isn't there in the in the sector. And Darren, is it is it coming back? I mean, with these prices being what they are, even with a cagey regulatory environment, surely somebody's going to try to make some money. <laughs> the first Indian over the hill always gets shot, it seems like. But yeah, they're coming back. Um, you know, you'll see some guys step back in here and put some money back into some drilling and, and, and try and increase their natural gas refining capacity. Um, you know, their exports is where the money's at right now. And you've re if you're going to increase production, it'll mostly be in those export areas. And that export, that liquefaction of U.S. natural gas, Darren, it feels like that's gotten a lot of press here over the past six months, but it's still a fairly young industry. Do you anticipate that just growing like crazy as we supply more of Europe? I believe it will. Um, but, you know, I still see some strange things out there right now. You know, if you look at the state of New York, they won't allow any new pipelines into that state. They won't even net, let natural gas pipelines come in. The, it seems like they'll let more diesel fuel come in than they will natural gas for a backup power supply. But, you know, natural gas is cleaner. It's easier to get in, safer by pipeline. But yet you still see a lot of restrictions on, on the future of natural gas. Darren, before we let you go, fossil fuel as an energy source, do you see it going away anytime in the next 10 years? There's no way it can go away uh, unless you're willing to kill your entire economy. Uh, it's going to be here for the next 20 to 30 years, in my viewpoint. Uh, there's just no way, even with the temperatures you're seeing out here today, they're talking rolling blackouts or brownouts. Where are they going to get the power capacity to charge cars at the same time? Absolutely. We need fossil fuels. We need this energy source, and hopefully we can need those prices to come down to keep farmers competitive. Darren Domi, Managing Partner at Powerline Group, thanks so much for joining us today and sharing your insight on what's happening here in the energy space. Thank you, Mike. And folks, stick around. We're going to get an update on the Kansas wheat harvest from Marsha Boswell, VP of Communications at Kansas Wheat, when AOA returns. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up.
I'll take dig a little, learn a lot for 30 bushels. Soft and crumbly. Tom. How does healthy soil feel to the touch? Correct. Dig a little for 40 bushels. Sweet and earthy. Tom. What does healthy soil smell like? Yes, go again. Dig a little for 50 bushels. Dark, porous, and alive. Tom. What does healthy soil look like? You win. Understanding the basics and benefits of healthy soil can make your farm a winner, too, through lower input costs, better yields, and drought protection, which can lead to a healthier bottom line for your business. Contact your local Natural Resources Conservation Service office today to find out how you can unlock the secrets in your soil. This message brought to you by USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service and this radio station. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. This is Around the Table, where we explore the benefits of cooperative ownership. Today, we'll be talking with Brittany Nelson, Senior Risk Management Representative at Nationwide, about how to stay safe when operating an all-terrain vehicle on the farm. Brittany, operating an ATV or side-by-side comes with risks. What should farmers keep in mind with this type of equipment? Something that we don't think about as farmers, as people that have been around it our whole lives, is that ATVs cause 700 deaths a year and over 100,000 injuries a year. I get a lot of, we know how to operate them. That won't happen to me. But death and injuries do happen with ATVs, and we need to be diligent and focused on operating them safely. How do age or skill level change your recommendations for safe driving? I think it impacts it hugely, especially on the farm. We're going to have youth on these, and 90% of ATV-related injuries involve children with the lack of development or skills needed to operate these ATVs. ATVs and UTVs are also, as we said before, designed for the off-road terrain. This type of terrain can have holes, ruts, wires, fences. We need to teach people how to move around those obstacles. Young kids, maybe new employees that have never operated this type of equipment on that type of terrain, they're not gonna know how to operate around these. With all of this, the most important is how you train them. You can't just put them on, you can't just think, hey, they've driven a vehicle before they can drive this. It is a whole different situation. ATVs and UTVs can be much larger with a lot of power that new users may not be equipped to handle. I highly recommend, highly recommend safety courses for children and new operators, as well as using the protective equipment like helmets for kids. Yes, they are on a piece of equipment you wouldn't think needs that, but it's just like a bike. If they hit that, they're going to go over and they need to be protected. That's Brittany Nelson, Senior Risk Management Representative at Nationwide. And folks, thank you for joining us here around the table. To learn more about the benefits of cooperative ownership, visit cooperativeownership.com. Would you know what to do in a poison emergency? Would you know whom to call? Well, the answer is poison help. 1-800-222-1222. Poison help is a 24-7 government hotline staffed by poison experts. It's free to call and available in over 100 languages. Every second counts in a poison emergency. Don't waste it wondering who to call. Save poison help in your phone today. 1-800-222-1222. Chris Domine is a husband, father, an athlete, even an Iron Man. But 10 years ago, Chris's kidneys were failing. The doctor said, if you don't get a kidney transplant, you are going to die. Chris received a second chance, made possible by an organ donor. Your well-being changes from loss of hope to better times ahead. What could you make possible as an organ, eye, and tissue donor? Leave behind the gift of life. Go to organdonor.gov, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. 
You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Well, folks, just about two weeks ago, combines began to nose their way into those fields of fertile Kansas wheat, and they have been off and running ever since. To give us an update on how wheat harvest is progressing, progressing rather, there in the state of Kansas, we're joined now by Marsha Boswell. She's the vice president of communications at Kansas Wheat. Marsha, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Absolutely. Thank you for inviting me to join you. Well, let's get an update. Marsha Combines have been running for two weeks now in the fields. What are producers finding? How are how is harvest coming along so far? Well, I think that a lot of farmers are finding that yields are a little bit better than they expected. However, they weren't expecting great yields. It is still a little bit below average across the state. One thing that is a little bit different this year um, harvest is progressing very quickly. We have gotten reports that it's all the way um, in it pretty much every county now. And the USDA report that came out last week or yesterday said that 59% of the state is harvested. And so that's really far ahead. An average year will only be about 40% harvested by this time. And so it's, it's moving very quickly. There are some rains that are expected to come into some areas um, this weekend. And so with this week's dry temperatures, I think a lot of farmers are just trying to make as much progress as they can before rains come in and just moving as quickly as they can this week. That certainly makes sense. Marcia, you talked about how this has been a very challenging growing season for producers across Kansas with that dryness that was really locked over at least the western part of the state so much this winter. As combines have been rolling, have you noticed a big difference in yield between different parts of the state? It is varying a lot, uh, different parts of the state. So harvest kind of starts in south central Kansas. They were dry, but uh, yields are still in the 50 range. Um, but then as, as it moves to Southwest Kansas, as we have heard, a lot of those fields were abandoned or not harvested because they didn't get any rain. They didn't get any sand in the fall. There's just really nothing there. And um, as it kind of moves a little bit away from that Southwest corner, it does improve. We've heard, people harvesting even down to the single-digit yields. But then um, other parts of the state, central Kansas, um, even into some north-central areas, people are back into the 50-bushel range. So overall, the wheat yields are are below average this year. Um, We're expecting the USDA numbers 271 million bushels. So down significantly from an average year of 325 or 340 million bushels. But what we have seen is that those drought conditions really um, stressed, drought stressed the wheat and gave us some additional protein that we haven't seen in the last couple years. I mean, we're seeing proteins well above 12%, which is considered kind of an average protein. And so the quality, the test weights are really high. It's an excellent quality crop this year. And so it's going to be very marketable. And um, I think flour millers are going to be really happy with what they get from the Kansas wheat crop this year. That's fantastic. It's good to be able to find a silver lining after such a challenging growing season that even though the yield might not be what you're looking for, at least we've got some other positives coming back in test weight and in protein. And Marsha, I'm curious, as you've been talking to growers who have been running this harvest so quickly so far this year, there's been a number of concerns from folks about getting repairs, getting the parts they need, securing things after a breakdown in the field. Have you heard any concerns about that or have folks mostly been able to, once they start running, keep running? Actually, we have heard those concerns. Um, a couple of farmers have had issues with uh, the death sensor on the combine. And so getting somebody to get that fixed so that they can keep running has been a concern. And yeah, there's there's been 
a few breakdowns that I've heard of that are, are a challenge for farmers to get going again, because once the wheat is ready, it's not going to wait for a, a few days, you know, for somebody to get their, their machines fixed up. So, um, yes, that's definitely been a concern this year. All right. Well, glad to hear most folks have been able to, to make it through so far and that harvest is continuing. Based on the pace, do you expect folks to be wrapped up in the state of Kansas here in maybe two more weeks? Yes, um, I think a lot of folks are going to be wrapped up by this coming weekend. Um, you know, the 4th of July is kind of the, the cutoff for a lot of people. And they say, you know, that we're normally done by the 4th of July. Now, Northwest Kansas is still probably going to be continuing, but there's a lot of wheat being cut in the northwest part of the state already, and it's it's definitely earlier for them than uh, many years. You know, with with thinner stands and and fewer kernels in the head, it's just moving really quickly. They're able to, you know, run those combines a little bit fast at faster speed through the field and collect the kernels a little bit faster than a normal year. So yes, I'd say a lot's going to be wrapped up by the 4th of July, and then there's going to be some uh, cutting still going on, you know, that week after the 4th. All right. This harvest is moving forward. Marsha, I know Kansas wheat every day that harvest is going on in that state. You folks are publishing a harvest report. Can you tell our listeners where they can go to get that and keep up to date with the pace of harvest in the wheat crop there in Kansas? Absolutely. You can sign up to receive those by email at our website, which is kswheat.com slash harvest. We also share those on our social media channels. So Facebook and Twitter, it's at Kansas Wheat. Instagram, we're at kswheat. Fantastic, folks. That's Marsha Boswell, Vice President of Communications at Kansas Wheat. Marsha, thanks for joining us, and we wish all of your harvesters safe and successful work getting their season wrapped up. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And folks, we'll have more AOA tomorrow. We're going to talk about PFAS, P-F-A-S, a chemical that lives forever and is now causing dairy farms to be shut down, at least one in New Mexico. We're going to have that discussion tomorrow on AOA, folks. So hopefully we'll see you then. Have a great day, everyone. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. It's been said that when someone you love has Parkinson's, you have Parkinson's. The Parkinson's Foundation knows that the disease doesn't just affect the diagnosed. It affects everyone who supports and helps care for them. If you or someone you know is living with Parkinson's, a neurological disease that affects movement, we understand that it can be difficult to know where to find help. If you have questions, the Parkinson's Foundation has answers. Answers for everyone in the fight. We can help you understand the disease. Help you find expert care and local support. Give you tips for living a better life. And share the latest research. Find your answers and join us in the fight against Parkinson's. To learn more, please go to parkinson.org. Or call 1-800-473-4636. That's 1-800-473-4636. The Parkinson's Foundation. Better Better lives together.